Hey guys, it's Abel here with the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast. And yet again, I'm coming at you with one episode that has not been published in a podcast format up until now, yet it's been buried under my older videos on YouTube for more than a year at this point. So in this episode, I'm talking with a neuroscience PhD candidate and also one of my great friends, Tom Elston. In particular, we address the topics of smart drugs and what they can or cannot do for your intelligence and smartness and whether it's actually worth taking them or not. And he actually has an interesting history with this stuff because he has published a paper on this very topic where they looked at the effects of aniracetam, I believe, and he also used to be involved with the smart drug market. So it's interesting to hear the take of someone who has been at both ends of this whole thing. We will also talk a little bit about habits and habit formation and how you can implant some useful and productive automaticities in your own life to have a greater productive output and just in general changing one's behavior for the better. So it's a really cool discussion. I'm excited to bring it to you guys and I think it will be very useful for many of you and let me know what you thought of it. So without further ado, let's go to this interview with my friend Thomas Elston. Hi Abel, yeah thanks. Um, yeah, so my name is Thomas Elston. I'm PhD candidate here at the University of Otago in the Brain Health Research Center. And my work now focuses on the neural representation of effort and specifically how it is that uh, whenever you're holding in mind uh, a plan to do something, uh, what does it look like to hold in mind an effortful plan versus an easy plan? And to do this, we directly record signals from individual neurons in the brain and can decode the firing patterns of individual neurons uh, to determine uh, what a subject is thinking about. Um, I guess brief biography would be born in Houston, Texas, and then uh, did my undergraduate uh, at Baylor University. Then right after graduation, I moved to Austin, Texas, uh, before I eventually moved here to Dunedin, New Zealand. Right, and that's where we met as well. And actually, and for people who are not sure, like they're used to uh, interviewing public figures in the fitness industry, uh, you should definitely listen to this because we're going to discuss a lot of cool topics, but also I, I have no doubt in my mind that uh, Tom will be a famous scientist in the future. So you heard him being interviewed first on my podcast. So uh, with that, let's jump right in. And uh, how did you get involved researching uh, a smart drug in the, in the past? Uh, would you mind telling about that? Yeah, okay. So... The long story short is that I used to, a friend and I used to own an, uh, a small nootropics company. I think at the time, this was in like 2012, uh, we were the fourth company uh, to have an online store selling nootropics. And that, my friend who I started that business with was the person who introduced me to the concept. And when he, the whole idea of being able to take a drug, like in the movie Limitless, that turns you into from a bored, you know, person doing nothing to someone who's super focused, doing all sorts of really interesting things, was appealing. Who wouldn't want that? Um, so we we did that for a while, and you know, there are all sorts of interesting stories that that come from you know operating a company that is kind of in the gray area. But it kind of culminated with doing uh, a big experiment, um, which we, as for the, the honors component of my neuroscience undergraduate degree, um, where we actually tested in a double-blind condition the efficacy of nootropic drugs. And so the experiment was using a drug called aniracetam, which is a very popular nootropic uh, anyone who's into nootropics or cognition-enhancing drugs would have heard about some of the racetams. And the only real difference between any of them is the solubility, so whether it dissolves in water or whether it dissolves in fat. 
Aniracetam was the first one that was lipid soluble or fat soluble. And as anyone who would know a little bit about, you know, I guess the pharma pharmacokinetics or just the study of how it is that drugs enter your body and how they move around in your body, it would tell you that a fat-soluble drug will be more potent. So aniracetam made sense to study because it was the most basic and most potent version of the racetam molecule. So the idea was uh, to have mice, I had 30 mice, um, orally ingest aniracetam. Every day we suspended the, gel, uh, the aniracetam in jello. That way we could kind of mimic how humans consume the drug. And then we had them do seven different procedures, seven, uh, measuring how quickly the animals learned, whether or not the strength of their learning was influenced. Uh, we also looked at anxiety uh, and looked at stereotyped behavior, which what that really means is like twitching and things like that, because as you might imagine, another popular way that people take a, um, take a, take a drug to enhance their focus would be ADHD medicine, which is essentially amphetamine. And if you've ever taken that, you would probably know that if you take a lot, you'll start shaking. Uh, and so this, this measure of stereotyped behavior in mice is a way to kind of get at that same, if you take too much, is it going to cause you to shake and look like you're on drugs? And shockingly, um, the results came back negative. There, there was no indication that the drug did anything, um, that it changed behavior. And this was really shocking for a number of reasons. Um, Probably the most shocking reason for me was that the drug aniracetam fits the pharmacological bill for a drug that should enhance cognition. And so if there was kind of one thing about the brain that I would want any, anyone and everyone to know, it's, it's called the Hebbian postulate. And it's, it's kind of sing-songish but it goes cells that fire together wire together so the most con the easiest way to understand this would be if you think about classic pavlovian conditioning you know pavlov's famous experiment where he conditioned the dogs to salivate when he would ring a bell you might imagine that you have one group of neurons hanging out over here mediating the sound of the bell and another group of neurons hanging out mediating the response to meat, which is what Pavlov was giving the dogs. So the idea was that if you rang the bell and gave the dogs a steak, um, those two groups of neurons would fire and wire together and actually form a synapse or form a connection. And so the idea of the bell then is that you're just passing current through a wire that's already been formed. You're just flicking the switch, turning on the light bulb. So aniracetam its mechanism of action is kind of the fundamental thing that's associated with this firing and wiring process or the process of forming synapses by acting on a specific receptor called the NMDA receptor. And in addition to that, there are some other, there are some other good reasons to think that this drug would have an effect. I mean, the other thing that if you've ever looked this up on other websites that were selling selling this stuff, that there are loads of studies showing that the drug has effects on impaired populations. So effectively what that means is that um, there are papers showing that by artificially inducing fetal alcohol syndrome into rat pups, so rat, rat babies, um, aniracetam can reverse that. Or in humans with Alzheimer's, aniracetam has minor restorative effects for their cognition and for their learning. And so one thing that a lot of people do is to say, well, if it works on someone who's damaged, maybe it'll make me, who's healthy, 
just fine. And so I think that my core message with regard to aniracetam and smart drugs, or these drugs are purporting to be smart drugs, is that if you are brain damaged, these drugs may help you, but if you're not, it's exceedingly unlikely that they will help you. And I know that no one wants to, wants to hear that, but it's kind of saying if, there, if you have much to gain, you will, but if you don't have much to gain, you won't. Right, so, so you, you worked uh, in, the, in, in, the, in this company and you sold some of these substances to people. I guess uh, you said that you have a, a few cool stories and we don't necessarily have to go down that route, but from your experience, what do people kind of expect from these smart drugs, what will they do to them? Hmm. The major thing, I should also say that luckily we were able to, uh, to sell the company before I even started doing the experiments just because I didn't want to have con any kind of conflict of interest. Um, but if you're asking about who the typical client was and what do they want from, from a smart drug, your typical client was a young person who uses the internet. Um, or who is very internet savvy. Um, typically, people would ask. Oh, sorry, there's a big helicopter flying by. Yeah, right. um, but typically, people want the the ability to be focused. That's what people really want. They want more focus, less anxiety, uh, and they are expecting the drug to enhance their focus and reduce their anxiety. Right. That, that was empowering, that movie, though, Limitless. I, I remember seeing that, and, uh, yeah, I just, I, I just really wanted to take something that would get me anywhere where close to that. But um, so I don't know, like, I, because I guess these, when, when you take something, I mean, we all know about the placebo effect, uh, but I, I don't know, like, in your mind, do you think people will experience something just because they expect to be more focused, or, or like, is is there actually actually some uh, literature on that or anything? Uh, I mean, the placebo effect definitely is real, and the subjective changes that people are experiencing, I think, are due to are due to the uh, the placebo effect because. Um, I mean, especially since we did the study in mice, um, I'm not saying that mice couldn't experience the placebo effect, but I'm saying it's very unlikely that mice would experience the placebo effect just because they don't have the conscious experience kind of necessary for this, you know? Right. Um, so I would, I would definitely say that the, the effects that people say they're having with, the, with these drugs um, are probably ninety nine percent placebo effect, right? And and so I don't know. What about other substances? I, what about caffeine? What about amphetamine? Not that anybody wants to try amphetamine to enhance cognition necessarily. But um, do you know of any any anything else? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So caffeine is caffeine's the real deal. Um, it will definitely the, w the way it works is isn't exactly cognition enhancing but I mean then again when you talk about cognition enhancement it all depends on how you define it if you want to define it as feeling feeling like you have more mental energy uh, that's one way to define it and in which case caffeine and really any kind of stimulant drug even smoking cigarettes um, would be a cognition enhancer but if you want to define it as something which will objectively enhance your ability to learn and remember, um, I don't think there's any substance or any chemical out there that's been shown to do this. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's actually a good point because I, I guess, um, yeah, like you said, when people, uh, I guess there are two types of people or, or two types of goals with these substances and one of them is to just be very, very focused 
and like really in tune with what you're doing. And the other thing is this limitless movie kind of turning you into superhuman, super intelligent uh, kind of, uh, you know, superhuman. So I guess let's focus first on the intelligence uh, aspect of this. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you like, I don't know, how would you, because I guess if you go on an online kind of IQ, IQ test web page, uh, they will give you a set of parameters by which they judge intelligence. How would you define intelligence to begin with? Oh, man. Oh, wow. Okay. I think I would define intelligence as your ability to rapidly adapt to new information and and not just to adapt in a in a get used to it way but adapt in, in like a this is the current situation this is what I'm gonna do I would say intelligence is the opposite of paralysis by analysis it's being able to take new things take in new information and use this new information to rapidly guide future choices okay that's all right and then do you think so? So in a, in a I don't I don't know like in a in a practical world situation how would how would this look like? Uh, someone just let's take a simple example. I don't know. You can think of any uh, and uh, like an intelligence versus a less intelligent person. How would they respond to that situation? Okay. So one one situation that would fit here uh, would be. Let's say you go to China, and you, you can't read Chinese, and you need to learn the character symbol for bathroom. Even though you have no idea what the character symbol actually says, you, someone points it out to you and says, this symbol means bathroom. And your ability to only be told once um, would have something to do with your intelligence whenever you actually needed to find that symbol again. Right. And so um, would you, and do you think this ability can be enhanced, if not by smart drugs, then by training? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the really interesting things here um, is this concept of neuroplasticity. And what this ultimately is about is how it is that your brain is able to change itself. Mm -hmm. So you remember I said a second ago, the firing and wiring together. The interesting thing about it is that you can actually kind of control this once you're aware of it. And you can kind of get in the habit of what you could almost say is lay the foundation for some types of learning which can be built upon later. And I'll give you a uh, kind of, I'll be more specific because that's vague. Let's say that um, you want to be able to study better or study, you want to be able to learn faster. Let's just say for school because that's a common thing. One thing that you can do is that you can kind of you you can create a context you can create things that will prime your brain for learning and and really that's I think that's getting at the core of your question of can people can people use this information in in an active way to create positive behaviors for themselves and so the main idea here is that whenever you're learning something that learning is a unique brain state you know, you might imagine that it's just like another gear in a car. And before you can go to fifth gear, you should cycle through the other ones. And if you always do something in the same environment, let's say you pick a, 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 a very specific place that you always do your studying in. Anytime that you enter that environment, just the context of the place will prime your brain if that makes sense. So it's really all about consistently associating a given place or a given thing uh, with a desired behavior and just doing that very, very repeatedly. So that can be, you know, always 
studying in the same place and then using that place to prime you for your coming study. Um, I mean, it could also be the same thing of like when you go to a concert, you know, you're expecting to hear some cool music and have a nice time. And even before the band or the DJ starts, you're probably already feeling that kind of nice, good, good feeling. And the reason you're having that good feeling is because the context of the concert is priming you. And that prime, or that's, it's just kind of setting you up. It's, it's heating up those brain circuits so that when the actual event does start, you don't have to warm up, you know, just the, the situation itself gets you ready. Right. So, um, I, you know, we've, we've all heard about, um, kind of these general statements, like, it takes three months to form a new habit and, and these kind of things. Like, do you think there is an actual kind of repetition number behind this? No, I don't, I don't think there's a, an, a single repetition number, but, and I think it's probably unique for each person. Though I would say if you want to get a good benchmark, if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to come up with, with your number, how many repetitions you need, to, to develop a conditioned response. An easy way to do that would be uh, conditioning yourself to get out of bed the first time the alarm goes off and not the fifth time. Right. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but the way you can actually do this is you can lay on your bed and set an alarm on your phone to go off in like 10 seconds. And as soon as the alarm goes off, jump out of your bed. Just leap up even though it's probably the middle of the day when you do this. And just that do that time and time and time again. You could do it for, you know, let's say 20 times. And then what you would probably, what you would notice the next day, if it's a one day thing for you, would be when your alarm goes off in the morning, your body would have been conditioned to jump up. Interesting. Okay, now, now I'm, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so you can you can use this idea of creating conditioned responses in yourself to to help you do anything. It's all about figuring out what is the target behavior that you want to create within yourself. That is that is super interesting. So so let's say someone wanted to become a voracious studier. Uh, could he be conditioning himself to study? quantum physics by sitting down and routinely reading an hour of, let's say, I don't know, Netflix or I don't know, like some kind of trash, trashy text, but reading that really carefully for an hour every day, would that be a good starting point? It could be. So when it comes to that kind of a thing, there, there are multiple ways of thinking about it. The way that at least worked for me in my studies was I would find a way to, to give myself like small little rewards as I would do something. And so this, I know this is going to sound crazy, but for me it was peppermints. I, I really like peppermints. And so I found that um, every 20 minutes that I actually did like a, a real chunk of reading or like a real chunk of studying, I would give myself a peppermint and the only time I, and that would be the only time I would ever allow myself to have peppermints. So subconsciously I was building the habit of saying that like, if I want this thing that I like, I have to do this, you know, if, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now another thing that, but it doesn't have to always be, um, giving yourself something like that. It can also be, you know, behavior in itself can be rewarding. So, you know, like the classic example is sex as a intrinsically reinforcing behavior. But let's say, you know, um, someone who's into running, you know, they get like that runner's high or whatever. So for that kind of a person, they could say that in order to, to go running, I have to do... X, whatever, I have to mow the lawn or something. And so you can even use another behavior as a reward for 
you can use behavior B as a reward for behavior A, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Inter interesting. So, so based on that, um, how do you think? How do you think generally? Because I mean, a lot of people are trying to change their behaviors. You know, New New Year's resolutions are all about behavior change, become a better studier, become this and that. And how do these plans fail without fail? <laughs> yeah. Well, the the way that these these kind of things fail is that people aren't strict with the reinforcer. So you have to remember that the reinforcer is the thing that you get. Now, so you might imagine that the, the whole underlying idea here is that you notice something, you do something, you get something, right? Like, yeah. And the thing that you get are the reward for yourself. In my case, if I had been giving myself peppermints whenever I wanted peppermints, the idea of using a peppermint as a reward for myself for studying wouldn't have made sense anymore. It wouldn't have been effective. I would have just said, oh, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, I think, that's why it fails. Right. So, and, and do you also think uh, that, um, for example, I, I, I've heard this research, I don't know, maybe you've heard it too, and maybe I'm quoting it wrong, but uh, that cocaine addicts, even when they just saw a picture of cocaine or or when they were just in the same environment that they would normally shoot themselves, they got the same kind of brain pathways kind of uh, fired up. Now, where I'm going with this is do you think that when someone doesn't change their behavior when they want to quit some kind of habit, let's say you want to quit playing video games all the time or something like that, do you think trying to do that within the same environment is, is a big mistake because of this? Okay, so just to be sure I understand what you're asking. You're asking me how it is that context influences the creation and destruction of behavior. Yes, yeah, exactly. An environment, okay. just general surrounding environment. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it has an unbelievably huge impact. Um, I just want to, I mean, to, to kind of underscore that the Nobel Prize in 2014 went um, to the Mosers and to John O'Keefe um, for discovering these things called place cells. And long story short, place cells are how it is that your brain represents space, like your context or your environment around you. And all other learning gets kind of appended to these spatial representations. So it's, a, it's good that you asked this question because context is at the absolute core of our behavior. And the answer is if you want to create a behavior, and let's say like, you know, it's you want to study more or yeah, let's say you want to study more and you probably don't want to, there are two ways to think about it. One way to think about it would be choose your study location, choose a context which you can completely control whenever you enter it. So my advice to people actually is, is to not study in your bedroom just because you do so many other things there that you can kind of dilute that context with so many other things, if that makes sense. Like the, the priming effect of that context for learning isn't, is not high. Yeah. yeah. Um, but conversely, you know, th there's a really interesting story that exactly illustrates the power of context on behavior. And, and it's a short story about a heroin addict. Uh, so the story goes that there's this heroin addict guy who is regularly shooting up in his closet, like at his, in his apartment. And like many drug users, he develops a tolerance. But what was so interesting here is that when he, sh when he would take his heroin in his closet, he could start taking doses that actually should kill a person.
but because of his tolerance, he's fine, right? But one day, um, for some reason or other, he just can't wait to to get high before he gets home to his closet. And so he takes the same dose of heroin that he would normally take in his closet, but takes it in the alleyway behind his apartment. And it immediately kills him. Wow. So the, what this is getting at is saying that even stuff like your tolerance to drugs, um, and drugs in this case can also mean coffee, um, are intensely associated with a context. And that if you change the context you're in, you're also going to change how it is that you respond to, respond to something, even at the fundamental level of taking drugs. Right. Uh it's it's um I, I guess the the only thing I, I I would be wondering is is like why is that that some people because I I'm definitely like I I guess I'm a case study that this conditioning works even for people that some of this stuff doesn't come naturally but why is that that for some people it comes so intuitively why are they so good at managing their their behavior is it a, a personality trait is it is it just something like a habit that they maybe picked up without knowing about it in a very young age? What, what do you think is behind these differences? I think it is, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I think it's like some kind of meta conditioning. Because take, for instance, now that you know this, right? And let's say that you choose to use it just on a simple example, like the, the waking up faster when your alarm goes off in the morning. And let's say that it actually works for you. Right? So at that point, you have just reinforced the idea that this whole theory of reinforcement works, right? Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say it's kind of meta because you're just turning the same idea onto itself, but at kind of a more abstract level. And so I think for people who, it, it's probably, it's not that they were born doing it. I don't think it's anything innate, but I imagine that it's someone who tried, who tried this kind of stuff, who tried conditioning themselves to something, found out that it worked, and then they just kept doing it again and again and again, and it just became easier and easier and easier. Right. And, and maybe, and maybe the way, I mean, I guess psychologists always like to harp on like, you know, stuff, uh, routine back to childhood and how their parents interacted, but maybe it has some basis uh, on this, like maybe the way that their parents treated them and rewarded them when they did something was kind of on the premise of this kind of conditioning. Or could that be? Yeah, totally. I mean, another kind of interesting avenue in this is that you know, people talk about like self-control you know, as you said just a second ago, the ability to control your own behavior and whatnot. You know, what that really, I think, kind of based on is, like, you know, what do you do when no one's watching? Like, can you actually handle the reality of personal freedom? You know, because many people, if you turn them loose, they're just going to destroy themselves. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think, and I think that happens just because from a childhood point of view, maybe, maybe someone's parents didn't like, uh, you know, tell them good job whenever the, you as a child were in a situation where you had freedom and you were able to keep yourself together. Right. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Do you, do you think it's also like, because for me, it's, it's, it's always kind of a funny thing that people, sometimes I just wonder myself, when I, whenever I catch myself just scrolling through Facebook feed or something, like how, how it is even possible for me to be bored when I'm surrounded by this eternal fountain of knowledge from internet, books, everything. Like no other time in history did we have so much access to unlimited information and, and just cool stuff. Like how can people not use this, but people don't. I don't know. Is, is it this freedom thing again? We just cannot handle it? I think so. But I mean, it also gets into this reinforcement theory stuff. Um, and the major thing here would be that 
people who are more likely to, to continue consuming information are people who, whenever they previously consumed information, benefited from it. So if you're just reading a bunch of internet articles that may, you know, be kind of vaguely interesting, but they don't actually help you or it doesn't in any way give you a way to change your behavior in a positive way or to change your thinking in a positive way, your brain will eventually just kind of like downgrade the importance of that type of content. And, and if this keeps on going, it will kind of downgrade the attributed importance to information on the internet in general. And so, um, the way that the brain attributes value um, to different options that you could take is uh, definitely one of, one of my favorite topics and uh, the subject of some of my uh, most recent experiments. Okay, so it, and so so that 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 is a that is a very important point that. Uh, basically and and I guess the same thing applies for reading books or anything that like you can read articles but if you're just doing it for the sake of doing it then you're not gonna keep up with it because it's not gonna be rewarding so that's where this conditioning stuff comes in right like that you have to consciously assign some kind of reward to the thing that you the habit that you want to develop yeah and you have that's, that's it. you're exactly right. You have to consciously find a way, not even just to give yourself a reward for having done it, but you need to be able to use this information that you've taken in as a way to reward yourself. Because I mean, information is a tool, right? Yes. And you tend to only keep the tools which are useful. So the real trick is to figure out how can you make anything that you learn or anything that you come across useful. And I know you, you'll laugh at this, but and I'm sure anyone who watches this will laugh at this. But I remember specifically when I was learning neuropharmacology, you know, that's, that's probably some of the most dry, boring stuff, you know, you can learn. <laughs> but... Yeah. You know, I, I always found it fun to, whenever I'd be at parties, to try to explain to people how it is that, like, you know, information was being transmitted at the synapse by speaking in, like, gangster language, talking about, you know, how your boy dopamine is influencing the postsynaptic potential, you know, right. and and it made people laugh, right? and. You know, on the one hand, I mean, I knew people probably thought I was super weird for talking about that at a so social situation, but I knew that I had to talk about it because if I didn't talk about it, that information, I wouldn't be able to use it. I wouldn't be able to kind of rehearse it because every time that you repeat what you know, you're just strengthening that connection. So in reality, even though that person probably got a good laugh out of it because they thought, oh, well, who's going to, that's funny that you can talk about it like that. I think in reality, I benefited so much more than those people because I had an opportunity to, to rehearse my knowledge or to kind of strengthen those connections. Wow. <laughs> that That's awesome. Okay, so, so it's good news for people who are listening to this. Like, if you want to create some uh, productive habits, you can do that. And uh, if you're if you're lazy, you can be less lazy if you're not that I guess smart and focused on, on your work you can improve that now um, I guess to, to give people some practical information uh, do you have some cool kind of daily rituals product productive habits that you've developed for yourself that you care to share yeah sure um, well, as you probably would imagine in science um, Writing is a is a really really big deal uh, because if you can't communicate your ideas, you know so what? I think Pericles said, um, if you have an idea and you can't communicate it, it's better that you never had the idea at all. And so one thing I do to 
to work on my writing is every day um, I just sit down with a notebook and a pen and just write nonstop for like seven minutes. No more than seven minutes, no less. I set a timer. And the idea is that I don't have to write about anything specific. Just the mere fact of actually writing will warm up kind of the communicative centers of your brain, uh, which on the one hand, it makes it easier to write later, makes it easier to speak and to think later because the, vo the voice in your head is actually real. Um, and whenever you write or you speak, you're, you're all, that voice in your head is actually happening as well. So that's one thing. The other really interesting thing about it that I found is that by doing it for exactly seven minutes, which you can do it for longer time, I wouldn't go any shorter, but you could go longer, is that it, it also makes writing um, more like a skill that I can just turn on and turn off whenever I want. Because many people, when they're doing something, let's say just writing, for instance, you feel like you kind of get in the zone and like, Instead of writing for one hour, you're like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to write for like four hours. And so the, you have those days where you feel super motivated and you can do anything. But then on the flip side, you have days where you feel very unmotivated and you just don't want to do anything. Right. And the way that you overcome that is actually doing stuff kind of like this writing exercise that I do. You do the thing that you have to do for a very specific amount of time with a timer. And when, you're, when the timer is done, you make sure you stop. Even if you feel really focused or passionate or whatever, make yourself stop. And the reason for this is that you kind of reinforce the idea in your own mind that whatever it is that you're trying to do, this is a skill that you have control over and that you can turn it off and turn it on whenever you want. Wow. Okay. That is, that is super interesting. And so, and, and so in that vein, do you think that's the problem, I guess, with the typical student uh, exam prep setup is that procrastinating until the very last minute until it can no longer be put on, or, you know, or just postponed and then study the crap out of a book. And uh, I guess, I don't know, what, what do you think someone's conditioning themselves to when they're doing that? Not much. Not much. And, and what I'm getting at is that, you know, I mean, it also kind of gets down to, you know, for someone who's doing that, you have to ask yourself, what, how does this person truly value knowledge and information? And I don't just mean that some kind of philosophic way, but let's say, um, you want to learn how to be an auto mechanic or let's say you want to learn how to produce a certain movement like in a sport or some kind of exercise you know it's very very easy to say you know j just imagine someone like I don't know if I'm the right person to say this but someone who's trying to get a better bench pressing form right, right. like maybe one day they're doing it and they feel like they're doing well so they do like a hundred reps of like very low weight you know but but that's just because they felt like it on that day yeah you know which kind of goes against the idea what it's essentially doing is it's reinforcing the idea that your passions are what are going to make you successful and while passions I don't want to say passions like you know you're passionate about uh, you know for me I'm passionate about the brain Right. So I don't want to say passion like that. I really mean passion is like your emotions or like your immediate subjective feelings. You're reinforcing the idea that your immediate, very personal subjective feeling is going to carry you through and make you successful. And that's not what's going to make you successful. What will ultimately make you successful is your, your ability to to employ your behavior however you want to as the situation requires of you. Right, and and you mentioned that you're passionate about the brain, but it's not like every day you're waking up and 
jumping out of it and like, woohoo, I can go in and pull another 12 hour day in the lab. Like you've put in a hundred thousand repetitions and a lot immerse yourself with an enormous amount of hard work to get to your PhD. So passion is a component, but nowhere near all of the components, correct? Yeah, and I mean it's think about it like this. Specifically for me, I know that you know doing the brain research is hard enough to where if you're not genuinely into it you wouldn't do it because it's hard and you know so if there wasn't that that personal aspect of of liking it you couldn't do it you know it's just it just takes too much but what i what i'm really meaning to to get it i don't in any way want to want to be putting the message out there that you shouldn't follow like your passions in the sense of passion meaning like the kind of work that you truly love to do, like that thing. I don't want to say that at all. What I really meant to say would be, you know, passion, like if you see like a really pretty girl and all of a sudden like you feel a lot of passion towards her, you know, sorry, there's another helicopter. Yeah, that's okay. Um, or let's say like you're, you're, you're somewhere and like you're standing in a line and someone cuts in front of line and all of a sudden you feel passionately mad at that person. That, that's that's like a subjective momentary passion that's not the same thing as like passion about your vocation so what I'm really trying to say is yeah definitely go for your passion follow your dreams but don't allow your emotions or the way that you f you feel in one moment to determine whether or not you are good or bad at something Right. Okay. That's. Uh, I think that's that's a very powerful message. And and with that, actually, do you have some good? Because um, you're a big reader yourself. Do you have any cool books uh, that you recommend people on on this topic? So you mean books specifically about like reinforcement and stuff, or you, what? I guess I, I, uh, I, I guess I can open the list with uh, a, a book called Flow by it's actually you you know flow it's 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 written by a hungarian psychologist actually cheeks and mihai uh and and it's about that idea of deep deep work and like how you can con condition yourself to do you know just deep concentrated work and and get into it and like you said with the writing stuff for example to without being in the zone uh at that time just doing it so books like that I don't know if I can give you uh, a recommendation of something like a self-help book, but I can definitely say in terms of books that can really get you thinking about this kind of stuff, you know, like on, a, on like a personal level, would be the stuff by John Paul Sartre. Like, uh, if I had to recommend one book, it would probably be Nausea by John Paul Sartre. And the reason with res with specific regard to this idea of conditioning and whatnot is that the whole premise of conditioning is that you are able to to create importance. You are kind of able to create meaning. And because the only reason we behave, the only reason we have a brain really is to is to move. You know, because the nervous system controls the body. And the only reason that we move is because we need to get something or we need to do something and those things are important. So the, the philosophical underpinning of this conditioning stuff is really your own ability to create meaning, your own ability to assign meaning to different things, your ability to take information that you didn't know about, you didn't care about, to say it matters, and to be able to believe that it matters. Right. And I think um, specifically Jean-Paul Sartre um, and, and kind of that whole existentialist crew uh, really explore in a cool way what it means to start with the assumption that there's no meaning to anything and then 
kind of work your way through to realizing that you can consciously assign and be the creator of meaning in your own life. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> People read that book. That sounds pretty interesting. And, and we didn't, we didn't even get to the whole topic of self help books. Uh, I have, um, I, I was always kind of had a with or without you kind of relationship with self help books. Uh, you know, the kind of the four hour work week type of <laughs> self help books. So we didn't even get to discuss that. But with that, uh, we've already almost gone for an hour. So I, I really want to thank you for your time. And and I guess uh, you're more busy doing your PhD than being a very public figure right now. But are there any places where people can read about your stuff, maybe your research, anything like that? Yeah, um, I have a website, tomelston.com. Um, I. On the topic of smart drugs, I have an article that's been published in the journal PLOS One. Um, and I guess I also have a, uh, a page uh, here at the university at the Brain Health Research Center. So I think if you Googled like University of Otago Brain Health Research Center and looked at the, the people site, you could find me. Um, Actually, it's kind of interesting. I'm about to start teaching a class on exactly this topic, uh, oh. starting starting in a few weeks. So I'm uh, I'll be teaching um, first year university students about uh, all the all the behavioral theory stuff that we've just been talking about. Oh, cool! You should uh, you should get someone to record that and maybe post it somewhere. It would be super interesting, probably. Yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, but thanks, thanks for having me and for setting this up, Abel. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Tom Elston, who is definitely one of the smartest people I know. And I'm not sure actually how far he's from getting his PhD at this point as I speak here, but odds are that he will be one of the famous figures in the neuroscience and brain research department in the upcoming years. So I'm pretty stoked to have him on here. So I hope you've had a bunch of good takeaways on habit formation and improving your intelligence. I guess this is one endeavor that all of us are eager to take on. So make sure to implement some of the stuff we touched on in this episode. And let me know what you thought of this whole conversation. Make sure to subscribe to me on YouTube if you watch it there or leave a rating on iTunes to support this show. And yeah, thanks for hanging around. And yeah, see you next time.